Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And for the very first time on the podcast, Andy and Liam. Hi. Hi. Welcome on, guys. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, dead nervous, but looking forward to it. It's basically, I've invited you both on because I see you talking all the time on Twitter. And I thought, I've got to get those two guys, if not in the same room, at least on the same Skype call. If that's what I can manage, then then I'll die a happy man. So I'm glad that you're both here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was close. I, I almost turned you down. You're a progressive man. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good. yeah, it's an interesting one. I was saying, I, we got, we've got a very similar taste in things. And then the occasional complete polar opposite. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but neither of you really watch like modern movies very often. So, the, what we've had to do is slightly change the format for the podcast this week. We've uh, ditched our new release section that we would normally pick something in the cinema, and we've gone for listener questions. We've had people send in things to ask you to ask us as a team. So it went so well last time. It kind of did. I kind of enjoyed it. I don't know what it was like to listen to, but it was quite fun to record. Yeah, so hopefully it'll go quite well again. I think it was it was fun, and we've got some interesting questions that have been sent in to us again. Yeah. <laughs> interesting, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so this week we'll be obviously doing listeners' questions. We'll be doing what we've been watching, where everyone will take a look at something they've seen in the last seven days, and we'll start off, though, with the quiz. It's one all between me and Owen at the moment. Owen's asking questions, and it's me versus our two guests. Yes. So, um, you've each got a question. As in, Steve's got a question, and then Andy and Liam, you guys are on the same team, so you get to decide who gives the who gets the casting vote on the answer. And there's three questions each. So it's best of three, basically. So, um, Steve, do you want to go first, and, and you can show them how not to do a quiz? Uh, okay. Which of the following is the highest-grossing film in South Korea? Is it The Thieves? Is it Nameless Gangster? Or is it The Admiral? I think, based on nothing except the <laughs> names of the films, it is The Thieves. No, unfortunately, that's wrong. Yeah, but I know why you might have thought The Thieves, because we did cover it on the podcast a while back. But no, it's The Admiral. Roaring Currents, which has made one hundred and fifteen billion one, which is about one hundred thirty-one million dollars. But it sounds more when you say one. So basically, Liam, Andy. Oh. Yeah. 
Yep. Your question. Along Can the we same have that lines, one? Because I knew it. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you might know this one. We'll see. All these are according to Wikipedia, by the way. So if they change by the time this comes out, because someone's gone in and edited it, then I'm sorry. But what I took today from, from Wikipedia, which of the following is the highest grossing film in China? Mm. Is it A, Monster Hunt? Is it B, Avengers Age of Ultron? Or is it C, Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons? Ooh. I've not seen any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen um, Journey to the West. Um I mean, that was massively anticipated, wasn't it? it was, um, the, what's his Stephen Chow, wasn't Stephen it? Chow, yeah. Following on from the, you know, the uh, Kung Fu Hustle, which was superb, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, yeah, the same fella. Um, I'd say maybe that because it was so massively anticipated, and even if it didn't quite like live up to it, plenty of people would have gone to see it, you know? So I'd say it may, may well be that, Journey to the West. Awesome. Okay. Unfortunately, I mean, that was same logic, but it's incorrect. The highest grossing film is something called Monster Hunt, which I only know because it was just all over Twitter a while back because of how much money it was making. It's made, well, 2.438 billion yuan, which is about $380 million, which is nearly 200 million more than Journey to the West. And about a hundred and... What's that? About 160 million more than Age of Ultron. It's just absolutely storming the Chinese box office. But there we go. Monster Hunt, apparently. Oh, right. Okay. One to look, look up for then, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Some of their yeah. films could be a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve, yeah. back to you. Which of the following Japanese films had the largest budget? So it's not the, the amount it's, it's grossed, it's how much it was made for. Was it A, The Tale of Princess Kaguya? Was it B, Ponyo? Or was it C, Pokemon the movie? Um, I don't think it's Pokemon. I think that would be one too obvious. And two, Do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, I think Ponyo. That is also incorrect, but I can also see your logic behind that one because Studio Ghibli films make a lot of money and are quite expensive to make. But it was, um, well, Tale of Princess Kaguya actually won uh, that that answer, that, that quiz. It was $49.3 million that that was made for, whereas Ponyo was $34 million. So What was Pokemon? Pokemon was $30 million. That was like 2000, year 2000, I think that was made. That was $30 million on Pokemon. It's insane. Okay, Andy, Liam, your second question. Which of the following French films had the largest budget? Was it A, A Very Long Engagement? Was it B, A Monster in Paris? Or was it C, Empire of the Wolves? I've seen the first two of those. Have you? I've never heard of Empire of the Wolves, though. I don't even know what type of film it was. It's a French film. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, That's a type of film in my mind. (laughs) Um, I'm tempted by a very long engagement. I'm perfectly happy to go with Andy because I've crashed and burned on the other one. (laughs) (laughs) It's correct. It was a very long engagement. Yes. Made for $56.6 million. Monster in Paris was $36 million, so a bit less, even though it was an animated film, it was 
it was $36 million, but still still less than Empire of the Wolves was over $37 million. So there wasn't much difference between the last two. But yeah, a very long engagement. You are now one point ahead with the final question to go. So, Steve, you could lose it all on the third and final question. I can't contain the... <laughs> yeah, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> so, 117 countries have had uh, have submitted films to the Academy Awards, but which of the following countries has won the most Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film? Is it A, France? Is it B, Italy? Or is it C, Japan? Um, I'm going to take a massively wild stab in the dark and say Italy. He's only gone and done it. He's pulled the point back. Yeah, from the brink of defeat. Yeah, it was Italy. They've had 14 films um, that have won Best Foreign Language Film. And France have had 12, so just two less. But Japan have only had four. So well done, Steve. Liam, Andy, it's yours to throw away now. So which of the following countries has been nominated the most times for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film without actually winning one? So it's the most nominations without winning. Is it A, Mexico? Is it B, Russia? Or is it C, Israel? Um, you're tempted to say Russia because of the whole... Uh, but the Americans spent a lot of time um, not liking them very much. Didn't yeah. <laughs> Pulling it bluntly. Yeah. And they do churn out, and they did always churn out a hell of a lot of films, didn't they? Mm. Um, but now Mexico do make a hell of a lot as well, don't they? And they'd be popular in the States, I guess, view wise, because of the population, you know? I don't know. I, I'd, I'd take a swing at Mexico, but um, what do you reckon, Andy? Um, that, uh, the, the oldest film I've seen is Russian, which has absolutely no bearing on this at all. <laughs> but it means they've been making films for a long time. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm happy with Mexico. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it really is a toss-up between the two. I don't think it's Israel. It hasn't been around as long either, has it, as the other two? Let uh, alone making f- uh, films worthy of nomination, I suppose. What do you reckon, Andy? Yeah, go to Mexico. Ah, Mexico. First instinct. Yeah, Mexico then. Unfortunately, it's Russia. It's wrong. It's Israel. It's Israel. Oh, yes. Oh, Jesus. No. <laughs> Israel have had 10 nominations without winning. Um, oh. Russia have been nominated six times, but they won once. Oh, right. Yeah. Still less nominations, though. And Mexico have been nominated eight times without winning. That's quite a lot. Yeah. Funny enough, I watched an Israeli film this week as well, Zero Tolerance. Rather good, actually. Was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About um, a group of girls who go on their um, national service, join the army, and how they get on in the base and things like that. It was, it was quite a good film, actually. Cool. Uh, so, Owen, you, you need a tie break. <laughs> I do. Uh, and I have got one. Back to, harking back to that time where you forgot a tie break. And you need <laughs> yes, I do have one. I have got one. Again, okay, so basically the, the question is how many actor credits does Eric Cantona have on IMDb? Steve, Andy, Liam, what do you reckon? Um, 26. I think, this films or are you counting TV? Has he done actor this? credits. You know on IMDb it lists their actor yeah. credits? That's what yeah. it's got. Yeah. Right. I'm going to say 16. 16? Nice. 
Seventeen if we're counting Cronenberg adverts. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it'd probably be higher than you'd imagine. But Andy's oh, Andy said so. And, yeah, Andy said twenty-six. Steve said sixteen. No, no, I'm coming down to seventeen now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go somewhere in the middle. Uh, say twenty. Okay, well, Steve, you've lost because Eric Cantona has got twenty-nine acting credits. Oh, I mean, the big ones, I suppose, are he was in the film, I can't, I'm thinking it's just called Elizabeth, but it was about Elizabeth I. He was in that. Yeah. Uh, he was in Looking for Eric, obviously, because it was the whole point of the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know he was in a French film, and I can't, and he was like a policeman or detective, but I can't remember the name of it. And that's about all I can think of. He was in, he um, was in... The Salvation, which was a. I think earlier this year was it shown in film London Film Festival last year I think, which he got quite a lot of uh, critical acclaim for actually his role in the Salvation. He was in a film which I think is called Second Wind, which I inadvertently bought thinking it was something else and have never watched. <laughs> oh yeah, here it is, five point seven on IMDb for that. Yeah, the Second Wind. <laughs> Frank LaBeouf was in Before I Go to Sleep. Which yeah, was, just, was he? He was yeah, a doctor, was. and he was in one scene. And I was sat in the cinema with my girlfriend watching it. I just went, that's Frank LeBeuf. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? It was Frank LeBeuf. <laughs> doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. There we go. So that's quiz over. And um, I make that 2-1 to me. Yes, you are yeah. correct. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Liam. <laughs> Ever close to making me watch some absolute bilge. <laughs> yep, it's getting closer. Yeah. It's Columbo, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, on to the news, and uh, this week we have found out that Korean director uh, Bong Joon-ho, which I'm sure I pronounced wrong, next film will be produced by Netflix. Uh, he has done the likes of The Host, Snowpiercer, and Memories of Murder. Yes, uh, he's one of my favourite directors, actually. I'm sure he is for a lot of people who've seen, seen his work, because, um, me- well, Memories of Murder is... A fantastic little crime thriller. It's it's brilliant. It's really good, and it's darkly funny at times as well. With uh, yeah, I love I love Bong Joon Ho. Have you guys seen most of his films? Any of his I've films? S- I've seen Snowpiercer, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I've not seen the other two. I've seen Memories of Murder and The Host. And I, I yeah. think I probably enjoyed The Host slightly more, but I still haven't seen Snowpiercer, like many, many people in this country. <laughs> well, it's because it's not out in this country yet. Still hasn't yeah. been released in the UK. Because I've... of the whole Harvey Weinstein falling out, the spat over that film. Do you guys know about that? Um, vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. So yeah. Bong Joon-ho made the, snow... he made the film Snowpiercer. He took it to um, well, Harvey Weinstein's... Um, company production company were going to distribute it but they wanted him to edit 20 minutes out of it and change the ending and he said uh no so it led to this like year long two two maybe two year long spat between Bong Joon-ho and, and Harvey Weinstein where he was basically saying I'm not distributing your film unless you cut it to the to the way I want it and he just kept saying no nope, I'm not doing it just held firm said I'm not going to cut it um and then it didn't get released didn't get distributed didn't get a cinematic release. It was, I think it's on Netflix now in America. I ordered in a Blu-ray from France so I could see it because it's just not, not out in the UK at all in any form. It's 
quite an interesting story to read up on, actually. But basically, the difference is here with Netflix um, stumping up the $50 million budget, part of the the thing that part of the deal is that they'll, they've said he can have the final cut over the film. So there won't we won't get a, a repeat of the whole Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer problem, which is quite which is good because you know he, he, it's his film, it's the way he wants it to be made and shared and for people to see it. That's right, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, Do you I know what so. it's about? It's about. It sounds a bit like My Neighbor Totoro to me because there's um, a country girl who makes a friend with this big, bulky animal thing, apparently. <laughs> That's that's as much as we know about it. I like it already. Yeah, it seems interesting. I, I'm sure it'll go a different way to the host with a big bulky animal thing and a little girl, but you never know. I guess with Bong Joon-ho, he's a bit nuts. <laughs> and we've also got um, the news that it looks like Memento could well get a remake. Yeah. I mean, I'm very sketchy on the details of this because it's something I've only seen that, like about an hour and a half ago. That was the first time I, I, I saw anything to do with it. Um, but yeah, apparently it's it's getting a remake. Um, I don't know who's in charge of the project project yet. I don't know who's directing it. But it seems it struck. The first thing that struck me was why? Why is it getting a remake? Who who needs another version of Memento? Isn't Memento as it is fine? What what do they hope to change by by remaking it? What's what's going to happen? I don't know. And it's only it's it's not an old film by any means. I mean, it was made this century, and yet it's getting a remake. It's not a foreign language film, but it's getting a remake. I don't. I just don't. I can't get my head around it. What no, do you guys think? No, it's not for me at all. I just don't understand why you would why you would bother. There's no. It's, it's not as if it's anything in it can be said to be out of date, you know, overtly attitudes or anything. I just don't know. I can't see why the hell you would do it other than I, I just don't get it. It's, it's just 15 money, years old. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's the point? Was it 15 years old? It was that yeah. sort of thing. And um, just not, it doesn't need it, does it? No. Nope. I mean, if you wanted to try and take a, a spin off of it or something, but just a remake, well, why? You know? I mean, if you're going to do a remake, why not pick a bad film that had a good premise and which is executed badly rather than a good film that people like and there's no need to remake it? You're not even, they're not even doing a yeah. sequel. It's, it's a remake. So you know, what, what do you gain from it? Yeah, it's, it does seem bizarre, a bizarre idea, really, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Hollywood does seem short on ideas at times where a lot of things do just seem to be sequels or remakes or spin-offs or... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, time now for what we've been watching where we look at some films we've seen in the last week or so. Uh, this section this week might contain a couple of new releases because we've dropped the new release section because you've all asked us some questions <laughs> you want us to answer. Uh, I'm going to kick us off. I have seen the... Uh, new Ronaldo film documentary that is for well to avoid any confusion the, the Portuguese Ronaldo not the Brazilian Ronaldo and to avoid any confusion because this is a film podcast I know there's a lot of non-football fans who listen he is uh, a Portuguese football slash soccer player because I know we have some American listeners uh, <laughs> and old, um, uh, 
arguably the biggest star in world football at the moment and will also arguably go down as one of the greatest players of all time. I think that's fair to say, other football fans among us? He's certainly the biggest who pays his taxes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, extremely talented. I'll give him that, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and the documentary, was, it, was, it was made by uh, Anthony Wonk, or Wonka, possibly, um, and Asif Kapadia, who are the team behind the Senna, um, Arthur Senna and Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary. So they've got um, a fair bit of uh, credibility when it comes to making biopics. This is probably the first time, well, this is the first time out of those three that they've been given access. They were giving 14 months access to Ronaldo's life. Obviously, the, the two they've made previously have been centered around people who've already passed away. Um, Ronaldo is, is very much alive and well so it's a bit of a different different documentary to what they've done previously i've seen senna i've not seen amy have you any of you seen either of those uh, senna mm-hmm. so i've seen senna and absolutely loved it brilliant. yeah absolutely brilliant um and yeah so ronaldo now plays for real madrid used to play for manchester united grew up in madeira in portugal and it does take a look at his life now and talk to him about his, his kind of private life his personal life his family it's it's not the most, for me, it wasn't the most insightful documentary because I already knew quite a lot about Ronaldo as it is. For somebody who doesn't know too much about him and thinks he's kind of this just prima donna, arrogant, multi-millionaire superstar who cares only for his own image and that kind of thing, it is quite insightful, I suppose. There's a lot of stuff in there that you might not realise about him. Ronaldo himself kind of balances humbleness and arrogance it's very it's a bit strange he's very humble he's also very arrogant he knows he's the best he's well, one of the best he wants to in his mind he is the best he wants to be the very best he does he believes he's you know god's gift but then also he works very hard at it. he 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 puts you know untold hours into to being the way he is his son that i believe he had possibly as part of a, a fling but the, you know he's never said who the mother was and he just raises the child on his own and the, you know, there's a very loving relationship between them he doesn't drink because his dad died of alcohol related illness he gives a lot of money to charity and does a lot of charity work he doesn't have any tattoos because it would not enable him to give blood for a certain amount of time and he gives blood x amount of times a year there's a lot of things in there that you probably wouldn't know about ronaldo especially if you're not a football fan but also he is just this unbelievably arrogant <laughs> superstar but it's also really kind of down to earth as well at the same time it doesn't quite make much sense um but he he is he's not the most interesting subject of a documentary i must admit he's certainly more interesting in my mind as a person than lionel messi and lionel messi obviously the other big football star in the world is interesting so much the tax problems he's going through at the moment and the the rumours from his early years at Barcelona where they may or may not have pumped him full of certain steroids and performance, whatever. That's interesting about Messi, but him as a person, he never comes across as that interesting. He never comes across having much of a personality. Ronaldo certainly has a personality. I think if you know about him, or if you've read about him, you know quite a bit about him, you won't take too much from this. If you even if you're a football fan, you don't know too much about him as a person, you probably will take something from this and it might change your opinion on him a bit. Yeah. I have to kind yeah. of ask, what, what's 
the point of the documentary, really? Well, because... I mean, what's, what's the point of, of any biopic, I suppose? Well, it, they, 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 the people who made it think he's interesting and people would be interested in him. Maybe they are trying to change people's opinion of him or make you think, well, maybe he's not quite what you think of him. I mean, he certainly mm. comes across to me. It's the, the, the preening sort of thing while on a football pitch. And yeah. So, um, I mean, there, there was two things that actually went on on a pitch. I think it was during the, the European final, European Cup final, or Champions League these days. Yeah. So, so giving my age away there. <laughs> Um, the, the Fairs Cup final. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, there was through it. He had already pre-planned a place and a style of celebration, and had cameras ready there for it if he sco- if he was to score. You know. Yeah, um, there, there, there is a lot of that. And it does it does kind of look into that as well. Why he's, but he his whole thing, and it's not just about the team being the best. He wants to be the best. He wants to be the individual best. He wants all the focus to be on him. Yeah. that's just how he is that's just how he wants things to be he wants to be known as the best player in the world he wants to be the, the, you know, the Ballon d'Or winner he wants to win all the individual trophies as much as he wants to win the team trophies and he doesn't make kind of any secret of that a lot of players go oh no it's just for the team if I don't score but the team win then it's fine he's just like no, I want to win the team to win and me to score a hat-trick yeah very cool. and the other thing I mean I saw him on a pitch he, um, I don't know if it was late last season or early this Madrid scored, and I don't know which player did, but Madrid scored, and it wasn't him. And he threw like um, a five-year-old's tantrum, because sort of <laughs> I mean, it wasn't passed to him. I mean, he did, and he made it sort of visibly clear that, well, when it's going, ah, you know, yeah. uh, nah, not for yeah. me. But, you know, I can see what you mean though about, yeah, I suppose there's two sides to it, and it's not as if he's the first to do it, is it? I mean. You think when David Beckham was at Man United, they'd all run when a goal went in, they'd run to the corner player. It didn't matter what ground it was at, what corner it was, Beckham always jumped up at the back and arched his head as if looking at someone specific in the top corner. <laughs> so, <laughs> all photographs from, or stills taken from cameras straight on as in front and centre, whether he's scored it, assisted, whatever. So, uh... but but you know, you, with with this, it kind of shows you come away from the pitch, come away from the actual football. He seems like a nice guy who works really hard to be the best in the world. He's not—he's obviously got a lot of natural talent, but he's, he hones himself on it to have the physique that he's got and the technical ability he's got. He—he he seems like he's an excellent dad. He seems like he's a—he's a very nice guy who looks after his family, who looks after his friends, who gives a lot of money to charity. Does a lot of charitable things, organises kind of football games for charity, becomes patrons of charities, you know, that kind of thing. You know, mm. there, there seems to be a bit more to him than the, the preening prima donna that you see on the pitch. Yeah. Do they uh, get any interesting interviews in the documentary? I mean, they, they, they interview quite a lot of people, like friends from growing up, coaches, uh, players who've played with him and against him, like Rio Ferdinand. So it all depends on, you know, some people will find certain interviews in it's not it's not focused around them. They're just kind of snippets. You know, you might take something from some of them. Do they get messy to say anything? No, he no he is <laughs> he, they, they do mention and play on the rivalry between them a bit, kind of like around the Ballon d'Or when Messi ran it three years in a row, and yeah, he was like, well, yeah. and Ronaldo said thought you know, said he thought to himself after the second or third one, he said, well, that's not happening anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, they do play on it a bit, but it's it's not the main focus. I don't think. 
I, I think it is one I will I will see because it'd be interesting to see the bits you've mentioned. Sort yeah, of thing, you know the the off the pitch stuff. So it's one I think I will get bound to see. Uh, yeah, and like I said, it goes into his family as well. So so the relationship he had with his father, he died when he was quite young, and for the reason that he doesn't drink, all that kind of thing as well, and his relationship with his mother and his brother and his son. But yeah, it's um. It, it's for me. It wasn't the best documentary because because I know about him already. But I, I it was good. It was worth a watch. Uh, anyway, uh, Liam, what have you seen this week? So actually, I've had a really good week. I've seen several good films this week. But one absolute standout. Best film I've seen all all year. Actually, Train of Life. It's a Romanian uh, Romanian slash Belgian release. It's a hard one to explain and and not sound. Rotten, as, along the lines of uh, Life is Beautiful, it's a, a, a comedy around the Holocaust sort of thing, um, which it's, obviously is incredibly touchy subject. Yeah, not, so. nev- never the best subject for comedy. It's not, but um, I must admit, this one has really got me. The idea is it's a small village somewhere in Eastern Europe, not exactly given to wear sort of thing and they hear the the locals hear that the um the nazis are invading and they're on their way and they know that they're going to be deported and obviously panic sets in and then the village lunatic um, as he describes himself comes up with the idea of why should we wait for them to deport us we'll deport ourselves on our own train and the idea is that they'll they gather enough supplies and build a train well, big borrow and steel bits to get a train together. The idea being that they'll make for Russia and then from there they can go on further to Palestine, Israel, avoiding being captured all the way. So I think it's incredibly, it's, it's so hard to describe without, but the thing is, it's incredibly funny right throughout. It's not heavy handed at all. It's very much um, silly comedy a lot of the time, absurdist stuff. But then the best thing about it is when the actual reality is brought into the film without giving away any kind of ending, obviously a drop of reality has to hit. When it does have, it's the most affecting and jaw-dropping just moment that just sort of freezes you and and it brings you right centred to the absolute horror of it without it actually showing anything. It's one of those, it's so hard to describe but it is absolutely brilliant, and I would seriously recommend anybody see it. It's fantastic. Um, very cheap and easy to buy on Amazon. Um, is it not a new film, then? No, 98. Um, I don't do new, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 1998. Um, it's directed by a, a Romanian, uh, Radu Milayenu. I don't pronounce that entirely wrong. But... Um, and it's um, it's major, uh, mostly in French language, uh, with some German. I can say it's incredibly hard to, to, to describe without sounding crass, sort of thing. You know, there is absolutely nothing in this that could be described as disrespectful whatsoever, it, because it portrays the the Jewish people of the village that go off that decide to get them to make their efforts to get themselves out of this potential trouble. It shows them as clever. Uh, intelligent witty people and it's it is just a, a, a really very good film and like i say it's the probably the most affecting one i think it handles the whole of things more better in one moment than a lot of other films that are more focused on 
the tragic, factual tragic elements of it. I think if they overdo it, it can does not lessen it, but it becomes all on one level to you. Whereas this has gone up so high in the levels of real hilarious comedy and absurdist silliness, and then all of a sudden you're hit with the downside. By God, it's one hell of a fool, and it really does just just stop you in your tracks. Absolutely, that a pun? film. No, it's. Um, but I would say this is definitely um, a must see. For, for I mean, I mean, as I saw it, as I finished watching it, I I tweeted Andy, um, "You're going to like this," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, give him an IMDb link to it. It's yeah. I mean, it's right up the top of my recommendations list, that one. Yeah, you so. two have got a kind of... It's an interesting taste in films because I would never in a million years have come across Train of Life. I mean, you you guys watch a lot of, like, world cinema films. Did you do that 80 films yeah. in a yes. year, yes, Challenge or something like that? Yeah, did you did complete that. it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I did that last year and... Um, the year before, I did one month where I just did... Um, I did it in a month. I did the alphabet plus a numbers one, you know. Um, <laughs> a film a day. A film a day. Um, and that I just... And I did via a, a random number generator. I went to a, a listings... Uh, um, uh, streaming sites and just mm-hmm. built a list off of that and then just uh, saw how many I had available for, like, letter A and put it in a random number generator on the uh, internet and... Um, watched whatever one came out no um picking ahead no this you know no right. cheating no nothing and i found some damn good films that way and some absolute dross but <laughs> <laughs> a few real highlights like you know so okay and um andy what have you seen um i watched uh, a wonderful spanish animation called nocturna it's like nocturnal but without the l it's a 2007 film directed by Adria Garcia and Victor Mal- Maldonado. I haven't seen any of their work before, but this, it, it was just a wonderful film. The premise is an, a young orphan, young Tim, lives in the orphanage, but he's scared of the dark. And at night, he escapes to the roof to sort of look at the night sky, and he maps out the stars. And one night, he noticed that his favourite star is missing. It's disappeared from the sky, and whilst confused by this, he meets a cat shepherd who explains <laughs> yes, who explains that every every child should be asleep at that time, and for every child there is a cat who makes sure that that child is asleep. Unfortunately, his cat, Toba Mori, it's called, is asleep itself, so it can't make sure that Tim's asleep. Anyway, this cat, this cat shepherd sounds like an absolute liar. there's more so the cat shepherd lets slip that there is a place called Nocturna where everything that happens at night everything you take for granted as just happening is actually coordinated so for young Tim to satisfy his curiosity about the missing stars the cat shepherd agrees to take him to Nocturna so he could see the head man called Mocha who drinks a ridiculous amount of coffee to stay awake (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is brilliant, I promise. And when he's there, young Tim, he, he finds out how all the things at night happen, because they don't just happen. There's little sort of weird and wonderful creatures, like ones who fly around delivering dew to be dropped on the plants, 
ones that create dreams and read them out, ones that put sleep in your eyes, ones that mess your hair up. And whilst there, he, he meets this, this head man, this mocker, who doesn't seem overly bothered by his problem about the, the missing stars, but he lets slip that there is a star keeper who looks after all the stars. So uh, Tim sort of takes the cat shepherd and together with all the cats, of which there are hundreds following them, they go off to find the star keeper to see why the stars are now disappearing. And it, it sort of it builds up that there is this, this dark entity that's roaming around Nocturna, taking away light sources such as stars and I don't know if you know this, but in street lights, there's not bulbs. There's little, there's little fellas with sort of lighty up asses. I think I've heard that. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure that's on. Uh, on that the is a QI. fact. Yeah. Why, why, why if my local council decided to turn off all street lights after midnight, then? They're probably given the little fellas a rest. <laughs> they only, they've only got to work at night. They got all day off. Yeah, but they're they're shining their asses all night. <laughs> it's a difficult task. <laughs> I'd have thought so, they'd have a shift, you know, a shift pattern. It's a, it's a socio-economic <laughs> problem. They've basically made it so they have to get degrees, and then you know, just suddenly wipes out half of their their workforce. It's just a major problem for them. I, I believe that was the the underlying inspiration it for this was, film. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, Tim goes on this journey, and this entity's sort of getting in the way and causing problems, and they sort of have to come to a resolution. But I'll say no more because I don't want to give it all away. But it is—it's just a, a wonderfully made film. The, the concept behind it, with all the different sort of all the different creatures and everything being coordinated. So there's sort of little creatures spraying condensation on the windows and stuff. It's—it's <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing to watch, and I really recommend it. I, I recommended it to Liam. I don't know if he had the chance to watch it. I did. I saw it during the week, actually. Yeah, it, it is fantastic. It really ah. is absolute belter. Absolute That's the kind of belter. I was after. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, the little fellas with the uh, with the light up passes, they make a fantastic <laughs> noise. Um, <laughs> it's like um, milk bottles rolling on, on concrete, sort of noise as they as they walk. That sort of noise, you know. It's and um, Tim himself is uh, normally I find that sort of thing. They they can be annoying children leads like that. He's not in the slightest annoying. He looks a bit like um, Kim Jong Il and Rafa Benitez love child. You <laughs> said it's a Spanish film. Tim's not the most Spanish of names. Uh, <laughs> that may have been a translation. You thought you thought he'd, you thought he'd be a little Pedro or something like that. But... Uh, to be honest, I don't know if he was. I was watching the Spanish subtitled one. Where I think was yours in Eng- English dub, Andy. Mine was in English dub. It had a choice of either Dutch or French subtitles. Oh right. <laughs> Neither of which helped. Because yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think what the name of the lead character was in it, but um, and it's escaped me to be honest. Uh, yeah. I, a thoroughly enjoyable film. I really did like it. Um, all the little creatures that um, have different jobs to do, like little um, three little dolls are assigned to each kid to to mess with their hair. It's getting exactly like stylists sort of yeah. thing, but anti-stylists and things like that. Yeah, I'm totally with Andy on this one. Absolutely brilliant film. Wikipedia mm. says his name is Tim. Oh, right, fair play. Then it was in both. Then I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, 
I couldn't remember. But, um, no, I, I absolutely agree that it's it's really, really worth watching. Thoroughly did you, enjoyable film. Did you watch it with your kids, Andy? Did they, did I they did. enjoy it? Yes, yes, yes. They both loved it. They're three and five, and they both thoroughly enjoyed it. We've watched it. I only got it a few weeks ago, and we've watched it at least five times already. Wow. They're going to be very <laughs> cultured kids, though. It's very sophisticated when they're older. Well, they, they do enjoy 1950s horror films. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they liked that um, that weird version of Alice in Wonderland. Not as they did. Yeah. They did. They that, liked that a lot. That's a bizarre one. By that Czech guy, Jan, something horrible, something very long beginning with S, I think, isn't it? Uh, um, also um, made Greedy Guts, which is fantastic as well. I can't remember his name now. Uh, but his version of Alice is, is very bizarre, and I did warn Andy not to show it to his kids till he'd seen it, because <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> it is a very, very bizarre film. Yeah. And, Owen, what have you seen? So, um, because Andy and Liam were coming on, podcast i thought i've got to watch a, a kind of world cinema film otherwise i won't fit in on my own podcast. so <laughs> I, I went for it and, I, and then i remembered that andy sent me a load of dvds not too long back and one of them is called the green butchers um ah, yes yeah yeah which is a danish <laughs> film starring mads mickelson that's kind of the main reason that i put it straight to the top of the pile if i'm honest because i do love mads i think he's he's a fantastic actor uh, but The Green Butchers is a comedy and it's about two butchers in a small town who set up their own uh, th- their own shop after a bit of a falling out with their current boss. It kind of escalates to a Sweeney Todd-esque shop where they start selling human meat called Chicky Wickies, <laughs> I think he calls it. Which is basically people's parts, but marinated in a special sauce. Do you mean, do you mean parts of people, actual their part, you know, is in, oh, it's their parts, their, their genitals? No, <laughs> they don't say that specifically, but they do serve every last bit of them. Yeah, they put it through a bone cruncher or something like that. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a butcher. I don't know what the technical term is. They mince all the meat and they sell chops and steaks and all that kind of thing. But I don't know how he passes it off as chicken. That's that's the bit that confused me. You know, I always thought human was supposed to taste like pork. But there you go. It's it is a comedy, and some of it does get slightly. I'm going to say surreal, but it's not a it's not like a Salvador Dali kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's just like the, the bit with the, the main guy in it isn't Mads Mikkelsen. The main guy is um, this guy called Björn, who's played by someone called Nikolai Lee Kass, and I don't really recognise him from anything else, uh, unfortunately. I thought he was quite good in this, though. I thought I did like him, but he, he's he got a twin who's in a coma, and it just gets a bit strange in the latter half of the film, where in order to get enough money to pay for the, the butcher shop, he decides that his twin, who's been in a coma for seven years, I think they said, he's going to switch the life support off so that he can get the inheritance money. And he's a bit torn up about it. But then something weird happens when they switch the life support machine off. I'm not going to say anymore. And then the film's just very strange. The plot just... I mean, it's already a very strange film, but the plot just gets gets weirder and weirder. But I like the performances in it. I thought um, the guy playing Bjorn and Mads as Sweaty Sven, he was good. 
constantly sweating. He has a very strange haircut in this. <laughs> he's kind of like shaved the front part bald. So he's obviously meant to look like a receding hairline, but I don't think Mads Mikkelsen's actually got a receding hairline. Or if he has, he's had some very good transplant surgery because it just looks a bit weird to see him with that, that hairstyle. But it's great. I, it gives him this big forehead that's constantly sweating, which is which is kind of like a visual joke. It was an unusual choice, Andy, I have to say. Um, it, that's what I, I did. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, but thanks, because I did, I did like it. I laughed at it. I thought some of it was a bit odd and peculiar, which was the point. I think it's supposed to make you feel like it's a bit strange, a bit peculiar. But yeah, it was a fun sort of 90-minute film that has a, an unusual story and made me laugh. So yeah, I enjoyed it. It's just a bit of a strange mix of, of characters and, and humour, but it, they just a bit get away with it. They just a bit get away with it. So it was an interesting watch, and uh, I would definitely recommend it for people who like dark humour. I guess because you sent it to me, Andy, you enjoyed it as well. I did. I did indeed. And if yeah. you like that, which I'm going to say you did, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then there's another one by the same director called Adam's Apples, which again has Mads Mikkelsen in, and he plays a sort of a, a priest with absolutely blind faith that there's good in everyone, and a neo-Nazi gets sentenced to go and live at his church with him. And, well, as you can imagine, hilarity ensues. The odd couple, yes. Indeed. <laughs> it okay. is brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the other one's called the Green Butchers, and and yeah, there's two recommendations for people who like uh, who like Mads. Okay, uh, that's all for this part of the podcast. Next is our listeners' questions. Time now for listeners' questions, where. You lot have sent in some questions to us. We've done this once before and it worked quite well, so we thought we'd do it again. And we have got some questions ranging from the the mental to the to the interesting. Um, I think it's fair to say. Certainly there's a good mix, a, isn't there? There's a mixed <laughs> a mixed bag that we're going to work our way through. The first one is from podcast guest uh, Brian Plank, who you can find on Twitter at new. Uh, new rule, new life. His question is: um, provide the f- the the uh, what? Pick one film to provide the setting and a man and woman for your ideal threesome. I mean, yeah, so- I don't know. I don't know why he's had to make it a man and a woman because I was going to pick Brokeback Mountain for the whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his example was Gravity with Clooney and Bullock. I don't know whether. Uh, yeah, I don't assume that was an actual real threesome he's referring to in the romantic sense or whether it's just a threesome of the film the actor and actress but uh well the only the only one who knows is brian true (laughs) Uh, owen what have you picked well (laughs) i didn't really know what to pick on this but I've, i've broken the rules already first question in i've broken the rules i went for dolph lundgren john claude van damme and universal soldier that's going to be my ideal threesome. Us, us three running around fighting futuristic cyborg killers. Who's that? Just me then. All right. I'll be <laughs> okay. on my own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, uh, not my bag, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I do love a, a good John Claude Van Damme film. And sort of Universal Soldier is one of his better from his period where he was sort of everywhere in the 90s. Yeah. 
Yeah, just me still. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, Andy? Well, <laughs> I didn't quite know how to say this question either. <laughs> so, I thought I'd try and go underwater. Because I like water. That could be good. But the only film I could think of underwater was the Spongebob Squarepants movie. There's <laughs> <laughs> The Little Mermaid. Well, I, I, I thought about this more than I perhaps should. Finding, <laughs> finding, Nemo, finding Nemo? Yes. I suppose uh, Jaws is set mostly on the surface. All sensible options, but <laughs> I, I, I particularly chose this because when I thought about underwater, I thought I need to be able to breathe. And <laughs> if, you, if you're familiar with SpongeBob SquarePants, as I have been for many, many years, there is a squirrel who lives in Bikini Bottom, who has a, a sort of an air-filled dorm, which would be ideal. <laughs> so so it's, it's me in an air-filled, air-filled dorm in Bikini Bottom with Sandy the Squirrel and SpongeBob SquarePants. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Liz, can, you, can you rescue this question for us? Uh, not really, because I was as confused as everybody else about uh, <laughs> uh, what exactly you meant by it um, and all that. It was, uh, I wasn't exactly sure which way to jump with it either. I did consider going with uh, the big sleep, uh, Lauren Bacall and, and Bogart, all them glamorous nightclubs and hotels and the, mm. you know, the uh, blackmail plots and etc. Uh, but then I thought, no, nah, so I didn't just have a have a good a good threesome, as in a wholesome type, three people out for a laugh. I'm going way out west with uh, Laurel and Hardy. There you go. <laughs> so that'd be um, a, nice, <laughs> a, a nice little road trip. Um, try and get um, a toe off of the back of the mule. As we go, you know. So that, that is quite the mix of films that we've come up with for the very first question. This is yeah. this is going to go very <laughs> oddly to the rest of this this section. It was the the, the tricky word there was threesome. Uh, how exactly you go about defining that, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, a man and a woman, and um, two of us have just completely ignored that. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Well, three of us, because Steve broke back mountain, so oh, yeah. it's just Andy. Andy's the only one who's followed it to the letter of the law. Well, technically, mine were a squirrel and a sponge. <laughs> yep. Oh, well. Shambolic as ever, Steve. <laughs> anyway, question two is from Amy Saxby via the Facebook. What is your guilty pleasure film? Uh, so in reverse order to the last one, Liam. Uh, well... well toss up between two here because there's two films that I have seen literally hundreds of times and I sort of hide in when the <laughs> brain's trying to kill me <laughs> one is um, Harold and Maud which I think is possibly my favourite film out of everything I've ever seen, there's so many fantastic elements to that I like the comedy of the music's fantastic it's incredibly dark uh, I just find it even though a lot of the a lot of the um, humour in it is a, uh, revolves around um, mock suicide attempts. I find it a very uplifting feel. I watch it whenever, I've, whenever, I've, whenever the demons are biting, I'm feeling a bit depressed and down on myself. I'll, that one picks me up. So it's either that or the Blues Brothers. The first one, obviously, which I own about 12 different copies of, different versions and lengths of. So, um, yeah, but I'd say... For guilty pleasure because it's got so many weird aspects and I've seen it to the point that I genuinely know the script. Uh, it would be Harold and Maud for me. 
But I'm not exactly sure what what a guilty pleasure is when it comes to film, to be honest, either. Well, that's so, that's the interesting part of the question, is it? Because yeah. are the films that you that you feel guilty about liking? It's kind of. Well, I don't think there are any that I'm especially guilty about. Well, no, because if you like them, you you like them, sort of thing, don't you? Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, um, I mean, the Blues Brothers is pretty awful for lots of it, and. But I I adore it, and every time I buy a new piece of a new piece of new level of machinery, mm-hmm. shall we say, the first thing I buy is the Blues Brothers. Um, did it on everything, but, but from my first VHS, then to my first stereo VHS, then you know DVD, um, a better DVD, uh, then Blu-ray. The first thing that's bought is Blues Brothers, and I've got hundreds of copies of them. And that's really rather sad. And possibly I should feel a bit guilty about it. <laughs> so that's my two anyway. One of those two for me. And Andy? Um, similarly, I, I don't feel any guilt about watching <laughs> any films or enjoying any films. But I've gone for a, a film from 1995 called Empire Records, which I, I probably watched at the right time. It's about a group of sort of teenage kids who work in a record store, record store that's going to be closed down, so they have to do what they can to save it. And it, it, it probably is very cheesy, and but the soundtrack's great. It doesn't get a particularly good rating anywhere, but I give it a high rating. It's got, it's got a very, well, I, I was going to say a good cast, interesting cast. It's got a very young Renee Zellweger and Liv Tyler. It's got Coyote Shivers who no one's ever heard of, but he did wish me happy birthday on Twitter once. Oh, wow. Which, which makes him a, a wonderful, wonderful man. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's just, it's a fun film, but I can see why people wouldn't like it. It is it is cheesy. It, it's very sort of teeny. It's got, mm. But yeah, give it a go. And Owen? Well, Steve will probably know better than anyone. I don't really have a sense of humour. So I don't... <laughs> there are lots of American comedy films that come out that people are always fond of, and I don't get it. Particularly things like Superbad and Hangover and stuff like that. They just don't really, don't really do anything for me. However, there are a few that's kind of slipped through. And if I'm guilty about anything, it's these, because they make me look like a bit of a hypocrite, because... I don't really normally like this sort of film, but Step Brothers from 2008 with Will Ferrell and uh, John C. Reilly. And one I found this year, which I used to absolutely hate. I watched about 10 minutes of it years ago and thought, I am not watching any more of this shite. And then I stuck it on again earlier this year and, and kind of laughed at to, whilst feeling guilty about it. I mean, that was White Chicks with Sean and Marlon Wayans in it. Um, I can't explain it why these two oh and Zoolander I do like Zoolander a lot as well these these sort of films they're, they've kind of slipped through the net somehow and I kind of really laughed at them a lot and I don't know why I can't explain it I'm, I realise how stupid they are I don't know why they're any different to any other the other films that I sort of chastise but yeah Step Brothers I must have seen it about three or four times White Chicks which I rediscovered this year I, sh- I know it. I know that I shouldn't like them. I just kind of did. So they're they're, they're more guilty likes than than any other film that I can think of. Actually, I think you've probably set me off now. Remembering mine, um, I should have said um, South Park the movie, because let's face it. I mean, it is 
incredibly crass and childish. But um, there's nothing oh, guilty about that. Safe bottom. Funny, movie by God, it's funny. Yeah. By God, it's um, funny. My choice is, and people who've listened to this podcast from the start will probably guess, Mighty Ducks two. D2, <laughs> D2, the Mighty Ducks. But not guilty about the third or the first one. Well, the second is the best. So, <laughs> in my opinion, it's where they go to the international tournament and you get all the, you got the core ducks from the first one, plus like some other good ice hockey players from around the country. And it, yeah, it's my favourite one. It's when you get the Bash Brothers for the first time, which is what makes it work. Mm. I kind of remember liking... Did you ever watch the uh, Mighty Ducks cartoon? No. They made with actual ducks playing hockey? No. 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 Okay. Might be a figment of my imagination. Question three comes from... A lot of these questions come from people who've been on the podcast, actually, but uh, it's by the by. Number three is from Matt Latham at The Bottle Ep. Which two film characters do you think would make a good Freddy vs. Jason type film? Uh, to make it more interesting, no horror, action, or superhero franchises or or characters allowed. Ah, uh, I think he said franchises and not characters because if it's characters, I fucked. Up. I assumed he meant characters because how how would you? Which two film characters would you would you make would make a good Freddy vs Jason type film? No horror action or superhero franchises so you'd assume so that would only leave standalone films in those genres yeah Which, exactly well okay yeah <laughs> I, I, I always thought it would meant films altogether okay but anyway yeah yes anyway um owen okay it depends on your definition of what these films are really what genre they fall into um, I don't. They're definitely not franchises. So I went for Choi Min-sik from Old Boy against Choi Min-sik from I Saw the Devil. <laughs> Confide himself in a kind of weird Tom Hardy in legend sort of sort of fashion. Yeah. Um, if anyone's seen either of those two films, they will know just how brutal they are. I think they could make a very good fight, a very gruesome fight, a good one all the same. Yeah. Um, Andy. It- Similarly, I didn't see the action bit at first, <laughs> but I, I, eventually I did. So I have three options. <laughs> Firstly, I went for Ip Man versus Zatoichi the Blind Swordsman, nice. which would be a hell of a fight. Mm. And uh, whilst looking at that, I did discover there's an Ip Man 3 coming out next month, or perhaps Jan- yeah, January, I think, which features not only Donnie Yen as Ip Man, but Mike Tyson. Oh. I, I, I don't know. I know Liam's seen the Ip Man films. I don't know if any of the others have. But yeah, they, the first I like one. Them. Yeah, mm. the first one wonderful. Second one still very good. And I think there was some sort of weird prequel thing. Wasn't mm-hmm. so good. But yeah, it will be interesting to see Mike Tyson in a Hong Kong martial arts film. Anyway, that's not what I went for. <laughs> <laughs> then I went out for an all-out battle between Oompa Loompas and Minions, <laughs> which would be fun. But yep. my final choice was Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest versus Miss Trunchbull from Matilda. that film. Matilda, that's what it's called. Yes, and they could just be incredibly nasty to each other. <laughs> A Rudolph. Yes, and I have um, l- see now. I've not seen the first film that I'm picking characters from 
just this clip of it on various movie clip shows and things. So I'm going for the characters played by Colin Firth and Hugh Grant in Bridget Jones's Diary. I, I have seen that film numerous times. It, it will be a very, very British and polite fight to the death. <laughs> they do have a fight. Yeah, that's... Yeah. It is, it, they end up in a, a fountain, sort of <laughs> grappling and slapping each other. Your dreams have come true, Steve. You can, and, you can and actually other... watch this. <laughs> no, but like I no, I've seen the that clip. I meant like a prop them two, but in a proper all-out slasher, you know, <laughs> killing. Change the genre. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I had a similar idea with Harry and Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. Just move them into a slasher film. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I think yeah. just about. Yeah. <laughs> and Liam, round up this question for us. Um, yeah, it was a. A tricky one, this, but I went for um, Clint Eastwood's um, Man with No Name from the the Dollars series mm-hmm. of films, and I wanted to get him into um, film I know Andy's seen. I don't know about anyone else. Uh, Calamari Union. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get him into that because he's got no name, and that film has <laughs> has um, about fourteen blokes all called Frank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought with him, his, his uh, time working sort of uh, out on the prairies on his own sort of thing, he fit quite well into that film's plot of uh, them getting across Helsinki's Badlands, uh, trying to get to the beach resort for themselves. Um, I thought that would work in quite well. So um, that's that was what I went for. But uh, the, thinking about it now, I probably should have picked something that more people know. <laughs> but, uh, but I thought it was quite a good idea. A man with no name, and then fourteen blokes all called Frank. It could, uh, it would at least break up the monotony a little bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, question four is from Paul Field at Pasta on Twitter. Which movies featuring double acts would you replace the leads with the Chuckle Brothers? Liam, while we're on you, carry on. Uh, well, I, I, the plural of films threw me a bit but um, I did think of one double act I, I would really like to see the Chuckle Brothers do and I thought mainly about it for the last scene really Thelma and Louise um, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the two the two of them could go to me to you all the way down the, <laughs> fighting over the parachute as they go off the edge of the cliff <laughs> so uh, that's what I went for um, uh, sending them on a nice little um, downward journey mm. I have gone for the Michael Bay film starring uh, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, Bad Boys. <laughs> that would completely change the tone of that film. It'd be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. Imagine Barry and Paul Chuckle playing them. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Did you see that they they did a charity song with Tinchy Strider or some other similarly named British rapper? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. It's it's a it's an illness on the ears. <laughs> um, Owen. Okay, I went for slightly different kind of double act, but I went for the departed and swapping Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio with Barry and the other one. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, Can you imagine the the prison scene montage? Yeah, you know the, the Scorsese sweeping sort of tracking shot. That would just be brilliant. Um, Andy? 
I, I wrote a full little synopsis for my film. Oh, oh <laughs> go for it. I, I shall. I can't do the trailer voice. I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> but a man heading home in search of a Christmas present for his son stumbles across a back street shop selling curiosities. He hears a nice voice singing. <laughs> you not, see where this not, is going not yet? Paul or, okay. Not Paul or Barry then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Whilst in there, he spots a small creature in a cage known as a Barry Chuckle. He's given, <laughs> he's given strict rules when taking this home. He gives it to his son. Soon after, his son breaks the rules. Little Barry says, oh dear. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> creatures start to fly from out of his body. As they stand up, we see that they are evil Paul chuckles. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, they say in unison as they begin to wreak havoc. So yes, Paul and Barry chuckle taking over Gizmo and the various evil gremlins. That is brilliant. Yeah, well played. That's, I think he wins that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any competing with that. Uh, question five is from Andrew Brooker at Brooker411. Favourite film you love but everyone else hates, Owen? You know what I'm going to say, Steve, don't you? A Field in England, of course. I always pick this for, for these kind of questions. I love it. I really think it's an underrated British film by Ben Whitley. It's one of my like favourite films of the past few years. I've watched it about four or five times. I think I get something new out of it every time. I loved it. When we watched it on the podcast and we reviewed it on here originally when it came out, I think I was the only person out of you, me, James and Jerry who not only stuck it out for the full 90 minutes but liked it. I think everyone else either gave up or switched it off or just hated it. But I loved it. I still I hated it. Absolutely <laughs> hated it. I really, Bilge. really love it. And um, yeah, so I'm aware everyone hates it. Well, not everyone. Most people seem to dislike it. But yeah, I, it's not like one I even just kind of like that makes people... I genuinely, genuinely love a field in England. Liam? Um, it's hard to, to know what... Because I, I don't tend to watch too many sort of like that would get much huge hoo-ha or booing sort of thing. But one, what I did was, um, of my lists on uh, Letterboxd, I looked for the one that I like the most... And I had the lowest rating, uh, overall sort of average rating. And um, I was quite shocked by it because it was Bullshot, the um, eight, sort of 80s British comedy. Uh, Bulldog, Bulldog um, spirit type uh, parody called Bullshot. Um, it was crumb and going round. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I thought, still watch it. I think for me, it's, uh, it's the perfect bank ho- wet bank holiday film, you know? Mm. When you haven't got uh, nothing to think about, just some really stupid laughs to have. No, really, it's a, it's a great big long convoluted spy uh, spy plot. It's sort of like a bit Red Barony type thing, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's got loads of the sort of stock British comedy actors of the sort of eighties in it. So I'd say that Bullshot. Um, it only got two, an average rating of two, I think, on on Letterboxd, and uh, it's in my four and above club. So, uh, which is usually pretty hard to do, but uh, <laughs> um, no, so it's that one for me. Bullshot. Uh, I found this question really diff- difficult. I couldn't think of of many films that I like, but other, everyone else seems to hate. I'm st- I'm still struggling now, to be honest. I really can't. I really couldn't think of any film that I really like or love 
and everyone else hate. I honestly couldn't. I don't know if that says something about me just liking mainstream films or what. But uh, yeah. Um, sorry, Brooker, for not answering the question <laughs> properly. Uh, Andy, finally. Um, similarly, I I don't actually know what other people hate, so I went by ratings. And um, one that came up that rarely, if ever, gets on the list of best Japanese horror films is Dark Water, a mm. film that I absolutely love. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Everything about it, the darkness, the, the sort of the relationship between the parent and the child. I, I've watched it again since becoming a parent, and it, it, it's even, it, it affected me even more than it did the first time. But for some reason, it seems to be sort of underrated and a bit neglected. It is a wonderful film. That surprises me, because I thought it was a good film as well. I, I remember enjoying it. Dark oh. Water. Do you think well, it just came... Not everyone else yet. It. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it just came out in that um, wave of those J-horrors from, from Japan and people just got a bit sick of them all? And so maybe Perhaps it got low rate. Yeah. 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 Sort of the grudge and the eye and Ringu and all them like, that came out at the same time. Yeah, that, 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 I didn't particularly like the grudge mm. at all. Not really. I, I did enjoy the eye, and and Ringu did scare me. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think I'd probably place Dark Water above all of those. Question six: Tony Black of At Black Hole Online uh, has said, "Do you like scary movies? But you have to say it in the voice of the killer in Scream." Um, Owen, you can start us off here. I can answer his question, but I can't remember what the voice sounds like. Do, do I like scary movies? Yes, I do like scary movies, of course. In fact, I wrote or organised, I didn't write it, or I organised um, last Halloween, we did a Decade in Horror series of articles on the website. Do you remember those, Liam? Yeah, yeah, I wrote a couple of them, didn't I? Yeah, well. You did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I guess the short answer for, for both of us is yes. Yes, <laughs> yep. yes, very much so. <laughs> Do you remember any of the films that you chose in there to put you on the spot? Uh, the Innocents. Oh yeah, yeah. I love that film. Awesome. I, oh, there was one weak one I put on because I couldn't find one I liked for the uh, so Poltergeist I bunged it. Which yeah, it's it's it was good at the time. Scared the hell out of me the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was probably worthy. Although it's yeah, it's it is what it is. You know, The House of the End Times. That's brilliant. It's a Venezuelan film. That's. It's, that, that is absolutely brilliant. I still haven't finished that. I remember we we did have a, a conversation about this on Twitter, and I <sighs> I did, kind of dropped out of it halfway through, and I've just never been back to finish it. Uh, and the cure, uh, one called Cure, that's on YouTube, I think, with subtitles. That's really worth seeing. Very strange, very very strange, but very very yeah. It's not. It's nothing that's ever outright violent in front of you but the sinister aspect and the story of what's going on that makes that a very good horror film I think is that the a... japanese that one? is the japanese uh, one isn't it yeah, yeah the japanese one yeah that, that's that's fantastic yeah um it's certainly not like a slasher film there's no yeah, i don't think thinking back i don't think you even actually see any actual violence, but it's all hinted at and you see the aftermath and it's just the build-up and that very good so yeah i like scary films <laughs> scary movies even yeah. <laughs> Andy um, yeah me too especially <laughs> sort of really unnerving ones where they use a lot of silence and stillness and sort of 
build it, build the tension rather than just sort of jump you out, big noise shocks. Um, yeah, I think I like the idea of horror movies more than horror movies or scary movies. I find very few that actually scare me, which I'm disappointed by because I want to be scared. Shit. I saw um, It Followed. I don't think I reviewed it on the podcast. We were doing a special of some kind. I don't think I had a chance to review it. But it's meant to be like a good modern horror. And I just mm-hmm. thought it was very good. I didn't feel any tension or suspense from it. There were there were bits in It Follows that I think are very well done, but I think that's just made me... I mean, do you two still... Do you, sorry, sorry, all actually get scared by any films these days? Do any skill, films give you a bit of a, a cheap scare or a thrill? Well, I said, you know, when I first saw them, like Paranormal Activity, The Fourth Kind, yeah. they both did. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind yeah. of a... I think mainly you must get desensitised to horror after a, a while. You know, it's not like comedy. You can't, like, after you've watched 20 comedies go, I don't Long- laugh at comedies anymore. Yeah. I don't find it fun. But with horrors, it seems to have that effect where you just go, I just don't... But don't a, lot of horrors, a lot of horrors aren't innovative and they just copy what other successful horrors have done. Um, so it's, it's, it's by the books and it's ticking the same boxes and hitting the same beats. So you're just thinking, yeah, I know what's going to happen here. It's, someone's going to jump out in a minute, something's going to go bang, someone's going to do this, and it's just... Yeah, yeah. There's a there, particularly for a lot of modern modern horror films is that there's that formulaic kind of sort of strict blueprint that a lot of them adhere to because they're the ones that mm. people pay money to go and see. Yeah, yeah. the oh, kind yeah. of insidious set sequels and sinisters and and those sort of films they have a very well worn pattern to them. Yeah, I mean I think uh, the, it, the the sort of the the impact of the scare lessons when you've watched a lot of but the initial when it's actually happening you feel the tension you feel the build to the tension sort of thing i do anyway um i wouldn't say when i first i used to watch a hell of a lot of like um the real cheap and nasty b movie sort of 50 and 60s type thing used to watch a lot of them and then i so i think the first 18 rated film i ever went to see at the cinema i think it was about 16 maybe 17 something like that uh, was Hellraiser, and uh, <laughs> the first Hellraiser, and I mean that now I think is pretty laughable. But at the time, I, think I remember that really did put the wind up me for a while. But um, I think that's what it is. You don't get you you do get desensitised to an extent, but I think only in longevity of the of the scared feeling sort of thing. You, you still get that initial jump, that airborne moment when something does happen. It just it don't affect you for any length of time. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I still jump in the cinema seat sometimes at, at these films, but at the, I think there's a difference between the kind of the jump scares and being freaked out enough by a film that you just you just don't go into a room without switching the lights on afterwards, you know? You just you just feel a bit creeped out as you walk up to your front door and you sort of check over your shoulder kind of thing. You know what I mean? That that feeling of of being scared enough by a film, yeah, that it stays with you. But I still, I, I, I mean, yeah, okay, I do still jump at some things, you know. The paranormal activity films, as Steve said, are a prime example. Although the recent one didn't. I I've, not, that I've quite... not seen the newest one, but I've not I... heard good things. It, it it's a nice way to round off the story of those films, but it's not a scary film at all. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, okay, that's interesting. One of the conversations that we have quite often on here, and I'd be interested to interested to hear 
particularly what you two think of, of found footage movies. Do you watch any of them or do you steer clear of them or do they just not come across your path very often? I'm a big fan. You are? Uh, okay. I, I just, I don't know. I, I must be gullible. I get sucked in. <laughs> Wreck in particular, mm. the Spanish zombie film. Absolutely love that. And things like Blair Witch and Cloverfield. This just it works for me. I, I I do get sucked in as if I'm actually there, although that does happen if a film's very good anyway. So do you think it's partly to do with the, the technique that's used, or just whether it's a good film or not? I, I, it's if it. I think it it can be a lesser film, but using that style, I get sucked in. Okay. Whereas that's... if it's a normal style film, it would have to be a better film for me to be sucked in. Hmm. Yeah. No, I, I like them as well. I do. do. Do you ever watch any, Liam? Do you ever watch fan fiction? Uh, I'm trying to think of many. That I've, I've only seen a few, and it's not something I would say would sway me either way, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was... Uh, I thought it obviously it was integral to, the, to that particular film I was watching, but I don't think it's a... Uh, I wouldn't say, oh, that's a found footage type film. I'll watch <laughs> that. But mm-hmm. no, it wouldn't sway my choice to watch something or to avoid it. I'm sort of... Completely non-committal on it, really. Hmm. Okay. Uh, this next question will speed through quite quickly. Mike Shawcross on Facebook has <laughs> asked us: Of all the Bond gadgets, not including cars, shown in the films, which one and only one would you want for yourself? I'm going for from Thunderball the underwater jetpack that also has two explosive tipped spear guns and a front headlight. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm in mean, a bit of bind and I know Andy too. Um, I've never seen a Bond film all the way, but I, I remember seeing one Christmas. I remember seeing a bit of Moonraker on the telly and uh, did nothing for me. Uh, and I've never seen any others, so I thought only be fit to at least make an effort. I googled a list of his ones and picked one out of um, Moonraker. Which was um, <laughs> when he stabbed that snake with a with a pen, and only purely because I don't like snakes very much. I've no intention of <laughs> I've no intention of killing it, killing one. Um, if one came, I would rather leave than get involved with it. Um, <laughs> but it's nice to have a back. It would be nice to have a backup if if one got particularly mouthy with me, you know. But um, so otherwise, I just don't know. I just don't do bond. I'm afraid. And Andy. Yeah, yeah, same for me. Never seen a Bond film. Not a big fan of action films in general. So I went through the Wikipedia list as well. And apparently, in Licence to Kill, um, Mr. Bond dresses up as a manta ray. He uses (laughs) manta ray camouflage to fool some sort of ship's sonar thing. So I would have one of them. And Owen. I'm sure that'll come in very useful. Um... (laughs) Uh, yeah, similarly, I mean, I'm, I have seen Bond films. I, I can't believe you guys have never seen a whole Bond movie. That's amazing. But um, I'm not a massive fan of, of Bond movies in general either. The, the recent ones are quite good. So I went to the same list, I think, that you guys have had on, <laughs> on, on Wikipedia and had a, a scroll through some of those. I got all the way down to The World Is Not Enough. And then one name of one of these gadgets caught my eye, which was Bagpipe. I wonder what oh. kind of gadget of bagpipe. I saw that one. Yeah, contains a flamethrower and a machine gun. It was only seen in Q's testing lab. So it's a Bond gadget that he never uses. I want that gadget. I mean, how inconspicuous is a bagpipe to conceal a flamethrower <laughs> and a machine gun anyway? So, 
But also, like, under the same thing, uh, this is under a list of Bond gadgets, is nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a gadget. That is not a gadget. Some of these are just very... Um, they're, they're listed as gadgets. They're not gadgets. Mobile phone? That's not a gadget, I'm afraid. I mean, a dragon flamethrower. Bond commented on the fact that this device was very novel. Although this appears to be a sculpture of a dragon's head, pulling back one of the horns emits a high-yield flamethrower, which makes the sculpture look like a fire-breathing dragon. I mean, a lot of these these gadgets seem to involve burning people. There seems yeah. to be a theme to them. But I would, I would still go for bagpipe. That's my choice. A flamethrower oh. and a machine gun. In a bagpipe. So you could um, annoy the victims before you burn them to death. Okay. Uh, finally, two serious questions now from Paul, who in brackets is not that Paul. Um, <laughs> part A is, in a year when Mad Max proved what could be done mainly without green screen CGI successfully, do you think we'll see a reduction in CGI and a return to actually doing the action live and filming it? And I think the answer is undoubtedly Yes from my point of view. Uh, yeah. Mad Max proved it. The new Star Wars film is making a lot of the set. I mean, I know there's a certain amount of that they have to do with CGI, but they are making a lot of the sets and props themselves. And from what you can see in the trailers, it does look fantastic. Also, if you look at the Lord of the Rings films um, compared to the Hobbit films, the Lord of the Rings films used a lot of sets being made, whereas the Hobbit films used a lot of CGI. And I think the Hobbit films, although lots of it looked very, very good, it, it, it was noticeably worse in appearance. Um, the actual films is a different matter, but in, in appearance than the Lord of the Rings films. Some bits of the Hobbit trilogy looked like you're kind of watching a cutscene in a computer game rather than a movie. And I think now we will start to see in a lot of films real sets being used and... CGI being just used to touch up things rather than wholesale. Um, I'm I'm not so sure. I still think in it, if they're going to do it, it'll be a novel use of it, like Mad Max was. You know, they kind of marketed it that way. I don't think you're going to see a sea change in how big budget action movies are made. CGI is still going to 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 exist and green screens will still be used like quite a lot. I mean, you only have to look at like Marvel films. How much of that is actually proper action on sets? Most of that is, is CGI or with green screens, you know, it's either touched up or it's done com completely with CGI. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Some films, they, they kind of, okay, it's a bit cartoony, but it gives you the opportunity or the the way to make a film that you wouldn't if you had to rely on getting Cirque du Soleil in to do all your action scenes for you, like in Mad Max, you know? If you have something like, um, what, just trying to think of, oh, Chappie, okay, Chappie this year, the main character in that was completely CGI. Mm. Chappie was all CGI, right? That worked i suppose the flip side of it is you have something like jurassic park which although is is known for being like a breakthrough of cgi it still used a lot of practical effects and they still look really good that's because they, they actually cloned dinosaurs is that right yeah they were real dinosaurs yeah oh if only the sort of eight-year-old me had known that 
when, I, when I saw it. But the, um, the, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so Jurassic World is almost all CGI. And I think there were two sort of strands to that on there. Jurassic Park still looks good. Jurassic World probably won't look so good. Whereas something like Chappie, which looked amazing, was a really fantastic use of CGI. Probably, I don't know how it's going to look in the future is the thing, but I don't think it's going to change anyone's opinion with, with the way Mad Max has, um, has shown what can still be done using practical effects. And our guests, what do you think? Um, I don't really watch a lot of films that require CGI, to be honest. <laughs> it's mainly older people in a car going across country. <laughs> but I, 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 I don't have any problem with it. Something like Troll Hunter. Mm. Love Troll Hunter, but if it was made w- with blokes in suits, it probably wouldn't be <laughs> as good as it is with CGI. Mm. But um, yeah, with regards to the future, I, I'm I don't really know because I'm still watching films from about twenty years ago. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, I, I'm like, like Candy. I don't watch enough of the type of films to have a, a major opinion on it. I would, you'd like to say. Well, the cynical part says that all the CGI stuff that exists now, um, the computers, the joke, they've all been purchased at great expense and so are not going to be binned overnight, I wouldn't have thought. But uh, I do look p- prefer to see more believable films. And um, touching on Star Wars, um, now I saw the, the original Star Wars trilogy. I saw sort of at the time when they came out in the cinemas. And then I didn't see them again until... It was either last year or the year before last when I, I watched them. And I must admit, I was sort of incredi- incredulous. That, you know the, the one scene where um, Han Solo's getting towards the, the Millennium Falcon? And in the original film, Jabba's not there. But in this retouch thing, Jabba the Hutt's there and Solo steps on his tail or something. Yeah. Is that is that making sense to someone who understands these films yeah. better than me? Yeah, that. And I just couldn't believe how absolutely crap that looked. <laughs> and yet it had been put in, supposedly, to make the original one better. When it didn't, it just looked... It looked to me, it looked, it looked bloody awful to me, quite frankly, you know? But, um, no, that's it for me. I, I definitely just don't watch enough films that require CGI. I mean, there's a big, there's a big bit in um, Journey to the West where there's a CGI tiger... Sort of thing, and that just looks appalling. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's genuinely awful. I mean, they should have just um, photoshopped in um, a Frosty's advert, and it would have been more realistic. <laughs> you know, it's bloody awful. Uh, Paul also asked in Josh Trank, we saw a young and innovative director fast track to a supersized franchise, and for what at least his has knackered his career. What other young directors are on the horizon? You're excited to see. And would you trust them with a $200 million budget? I'll field this one first as well. I don't think any are going to do it for a while. Uh, I think this, the Fantastic Four, has kind of scared studios off picking young directors with maybe just one film or two films under the belt. I mean, Josh Trank only had Chronicle, didn't he, under his belt, Owen, when he took on Fantastic Four? Yeah. Um, so I think the studios be wary of it. And I think directors will be wary of it as now because they don't they won't want to do what Josh Trank did and go for broke too soon and then knacker their career. Uh, so I don't think I think it'll be a while before someone as inexperienced as himself will get a big a big budget 
franchise film like that? I don't know. I don't know. Mainly because Marvel still like to give young up and coming directors a chance. You know, okay, Joss Whedon wasn't exactly a young up and coming director, but he um, was given the opportunity to make a big, to lead their biggest project with the Avengers films. You had um, the the guys who've done um, the Captain America Winter Soldier film and are going to do Civil War. I can't, I'm really struggling to remember what their name is, but you know th- those those guys got their big break almost because of because of Marvel. They had some success before then. Ah, I really wish I could remember. Oh, jo- uh, Joe Russo and and Anthony Russo. So you know th- those guys got their big break. You see, you still see it happening. I don't think it's going to change just because one young director was given an opportunity and failed. There might be um, a bit more uh, sort of precautions taken they won't let someone just run off and get stoned and make their shit film and slag off the studio and cause all kinds of problems whilst they were making the movie but yeah i don't i don't know but so to answer his question if there's any that i think we'll we'll get a chance next i think patrick bryce is one to look out for the guy who i've i've touted his film a couple times on here called creep which is a really low budget film with basically just him and um uh, mark duplass in the role, so a little indie horror film was made for peanuts. I think he's got a, a really good film in him. Uh, you, you you just get that impression from the way Creep is put together that there, there'll be something from him in the future to look forward to. Not qualified to comment on that one at all because I just don't do the blockbusters, you know. Fair I enough. just genuinely no idea on him. Sorry. Okay. No, same same for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. the youngest director I could find was 43 <laughs> <laughs> and yes the last question then comes from Jack of Wiki Shuffle fame and that is why has there not been a movie adaptation of Polly Pocket or Mad uh, not Mad Max, Mighty Max um, <laughs> if anyone who doesn't know these, these were British toys um, in the probably 90s because I remember having a few Mighty Max things um, and I'll tell you why, Jack. They were just average kids' toys. They made a cartoon of it. There was no need to make a cinema adaptation. That's why. There's no need for it. <laughs> yeah, There's less need for that than there is for a remake of Memento, and that's why they've not been made. Yeah, yeah. Although, what, let me have a look at what the description is for, for Mighty Max. We've got the series follows Max, an adventurous preteen boy who receives in the mail a small statue of a fowl inscribed with Egyptian hieroglyphics, whereof the translation states, you have been chosen to be the cap bearer. Go to the mini-mart and wait for a sign, Mighty Max. The, the story for the toy yeah. is, a bit more, is a bit different. Max's dad left him his old baseball cap. Trouble was, this was no ordinary baseball cap. Got to look the business, Max thought, as he tweaked the cap's peak around to the side. Suddenly, the world had gone weird and very unfriendly. The cap changed colour. Something very strange was going on. He'd been caught in the horror zone, stumbling from one terrifying adventure to another with only cryptic clues to help him escape. He was all alone. He was scared. But he was mighty Max, and he'd get back somehow. So, yeah, if they were going to redo it today, it wouldn't be a cap, would it? You'd get, like, a fedora or an iWatch or something like that. Just tweaks the button, turns the cap. Kids still wear caps. 
Do they wear caps still? Yeah. Okay. One that his dad would have left him. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Vintage. Kids love vintage. Right? <laughs> um, anyway, on to um, recommendations now, where we recommend you something to watch in the week ahead. Uh, I'm going to go for Saturday night on BBC Three, sandwiched between repeats of Don't Tell the Bride and Family Guy. It's Kid Hood from 2005. Um, Andy? Um. I didn't get a chance to look at the listings. <laughs> so as I've never been on here before, I can recommend anything I've seen in the past. <laughs> so I went for my the best film I watched in 2014, which is a Serbian film called Black Cat, White Cat from 1998, directed by Emir Costa Rica, who also does the brilliant soundtrack with his No Smoking Orchestra. It's, it's, it's a bizarre film, very difficult one to explain. The basic premise is that a man has a deal with some gangsters. It goes wrong. And to make up for this, he offers his son to marry the gangster's sister. But that, that, that's a very basic <laughs> sort of premise of what happens. It, it is completely mental and therefore brilliant. Uh, Liam? Yeah, Andy's one is a good one. Uh, uh, I thought um, film four, I think, was Saturday night, late, late Saturday night. It's sightseers, but I mean, every, I think mm. everybody's probably seen that, and they. Uh, but for the video on demand one, I saw could choose um, from. I know it's on Amazon. The hundred year old man who climbed out the window yeah. and disappeared. Yeah, I saw that really recently. funny, brilliantly <laughs> funny film. Yeah. Okay, and yourself, Owen. Well, it was on last week. I missed it, but it's on BBC iPlayer still until Saturday afternoon. I think um, the Powell and Pressburger film, The Red Shoes. 1948 is one of my favourite movies. It's just stunning. So if you get chance, it's a bit two hours longer thing. So it's a, it's a little bit long, but it's, it's um, yeah on iPlayer. It's just it's exceptional. Okay. Uh, well, yes, that's all for the Fell Critics podcast for this week. Thank you all for joining us on this adventure through film, and thank you to Liam and Andy for joining us as well. Hopefully we'll get you back on at some point. We've not put you off the idea of podcasting <laughs> for the rest of your lives. Uh, thanks for having us. Like, um, yeah, it was fun. Interesting Good. night. Interesting night, yeah. Good. <laughs> what we like to hear. And yes, yeah, so me and Owen will be back next week with Owen. With me? Y- yeah. <laughs> yeah, with me. You know I'm going to ask you every week what's happening next week, and you've never got this information I always forget. um, I will just take a quick look, and I will tell you that next week is The Hunger Games. Of course, it's The Hunger Games. Mockingjay Part 2. Yes. We're all very excited about that. Who's who's got the joy of joining us for that one? Uh, That's Callum Petch and Chris Hay, who um, I podcasted with on Black Hole Cinema. He'll be making his debut on Fail Critics next week. Okay. That's uh, something for us all to look forward to. It's always nice to have Callum on. It'd be good to get somebody new on as well. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, on Twitter at failedcritics, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failedcritics. Thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.